Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team. It is a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. amen. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise the Lord. Well, if you have your Bible with you or if you've access to one, we have them in the pew racks in front of you. would love for you to open it now to Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. That's on page 817 in the pew Bibles. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a really big deal. It is a super sign. We know that because Jesus said that. He said that twice, actually, in Matthew's gospel. The first time he said that is in the passage that hopefully lies open before you now. Let me read that to you, Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The resurrection is a really big deal. Jesus says it is the sign of Jonah. When the sign of Jonah happens, you will know that something big has occurred. You will know that something definitive has happened. You will know that someone more authoritative than Jonah has been preaching to you. You will know that someone wiser than Solomon has been teaching you. And you will be held accountable for how you responded to him. Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah again later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16. Just flip forward in your Bible a couple pages, probably two pages. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. Let me read that passage to you as well. It says this, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Here's the thing about you, Jesus says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You understand that red sky at night is a sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. You understand that. You're, you're able to read the meteorological signs, but you're completely ignorant when it comes to theological signs. Why is that? You're asking for a sign, but you don't know how to interpret the signs. You don't know what it means when a person rises from the dead. You shouldn't need any sign beyond that because the empty tomb is the sign to end all signs. It is the sign of Jonah 
and it ought to be more than enough. There are plenty of Pharisees and Sadducees at work in our culture still today. Skeptics are always saying to us, you know, hey, if the God that you believe in really exists, then why doesn't he do a sign? Why doesn't he do something so spectacular that all people would would have to believe in him? Why doesn't he light off fireworks in the atmosphere that spell, believe in me? Why, Why doesn't he spell out in the clouds, Jesus is the Messiah? Why doesn't he do that? By the way, when we were at uh, Disneyland once as a, as a family back, I think it was in 2011 or something like that, uh, that actually happened. I don't know if God did it or if there was some, uh, I imagine it wasn't God, but we looked up and all of a sudden the clouds had been arranged to say, uh, God is real, Jesus is the Savior, believe in him. I assume it was some guy in a high-flying uh, airplane, but I don't remember that even that resulted in a great revival. But people will say, well, wh- uh, how about, what if... Um, what if God taught all the bullfrogs how to sing the hallelujah chorus? What about that? That would do it, right? If you do something like that, if God would do something like that, I would believe in him. Well, according to Matthew's gospel, people have been asking those kinds of questions for 2,000 years. And the answer that God provides is still the same. He says, I have done something spectacular. I have done something irrefutable. I have provided definitive evidence. I have given you the sign of Jonah. That is the sign that I have chosen. Consider it carefully and conduct yourselves accordingly. So let's do that today. Let's consider the sign of Jonah. In doing that, I think the first question we need to answer, of course, is this. How can we know that it is true? How can we know that that really happened? What, What if it was just a story made up by the disciples? What if it was the greatest scam of all time? What if they wanted to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and maybe they even imagined that he had risen from the dead, but that was just really so much wishful thinking? Or what if they were just mistaken? What if Jesus only appeared to die on the cross, but then afterwards he revived himself, somehow managed to break out of the tomb, and and told everybody that he had died and risen from the dead. What if that happened? How can we know that Jesus really did die and rise again? Let's take a moment and work our way through that. First of all, I I suppose someone might ask whether or not we can be sure that Jesus really was crucified like the Bible says. We can dispose of that question fairly quickly. The fact of Jesus' crucifixion is extremely well attested and is accepted by all mainstream historians. Gerd Ludemann, for example, says very straightforwardly, the fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. No serious historian disputes that. I I took my uh, undergraduate degree at York University. Almost all my professors were uh, Jews, Muslims, or angry atheists, and I never heard a single one of them doubt the historicity of the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. It's too well attested. You can find it in Roman sources. You can find it in Jewish sources. You can find it, of course, in Christian sources. No serious historian doubts the fact of the, re- of, of the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, you, now, of course, some people on TikTok will doubt it, but everything they learned is actually done through research on YouTube. It's a vicious circle of silly and stupid. But no serious historian doubts the fact that Jesus died on a cross 
by crucifixion. All right. But can we be really sure that he actually died? Grant, granted he was crucified, can we be sure that he died? Of course, you might be aware that the Muslims uh, believe in something called the swoon theory. They believe that Jesus only appeared to die on the cross, but that he recovered and exited the tomb under his own power. Is that plausible? Well, if there is one thing that we know from history, it is that the Romans were really, really, really good at killing people. And crucifixion represented the high water mark of that art. And remember, Pilate had actually caused Jesus to be severely scourged. Pilate's original hope was that if he scourged Jesus seriously enough, severely enough, and displayed his flayed and bleeding body, everyone would be horrified such that this matter could be considered closed. So Jesus had already been severely scourged, and regular scourging was known to kill people in the Roman Empire. Jesus was severely scourged. He was also forced to carry his own crossbeam toward Golgotha. He would have been nailed there to the cross with a nail through each wrist and then another through his feet. The blood loss from the scourging and from that nailing would have been severe. As the cross was dropped into the post hole, His shoulders would immediately have been dislocated. Hanging there, unable to pull himself up to breathe because of his dislocated shoulders, he would have been forced to push down with his legs upon the six-inch iron spike that had been driven through his feet. It would have been excruciating. By the way, that's what that word means. If you say that word slowly, excruciating, you realize that that is a Latin word that actually means painful, agonizing, akin to the agony of the cross. Cruciform, crucifix, excruciating. It was the word in Latin for the most painful, horrific way to die. As Jesus lost more blood, he would have become progressively weaker until finally he would have been unable to raise himself up to open his diaphragm and take a breath. And so everybody who died on the cross died by blood loss, exhaustion, and asphyxiation. If this was taking too long, a soldier would come by and break the legs of the person being crucified so that they could no longer lift themselves up to breathe so that they would die by asphyxiation faster. This didn't happen in the case of Jesus. Because he had been severely scourged, his blood loss was more severe and advanced, and he was already dead when the soldier came to check on him. But to be doubly sure, the soldier pierced his side with a a spear, puncturing his right lung and entering his heart, such that when the spear was withdrawn, fluid came out, the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion. The idea that someone might recover from that, brush themselves off, as it were, break out of a sealed tomb, beat up a platoon of soldiers, and then initiate a grand conspiracy theory requires more faith than I am capable of. Jesus died on that cross. That fact is indisputable. But how can we know that he rose from the dead? 
There are two pieces of evidence that we need to consider. The first is the reaction of the Jewish authorities. Flip forward in your Bible a few more pages. If you were at 12 uh, or 16 last time, probably about five pages to Matthew 28, maybe five or six, depending on your font size. Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Matthew tells us, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money. And did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Indeed, that story was still being circulated. Uh, So Matthew, as he writes the gospel, says this story is still being circulated to this day. Uh, We think that Matthew wrote his gospel sometime in the late 60s. So it would have been almost a generation, 30 years after uh, the original events. Most of the uh, gospels were written as the apostles started getting older. So still being circulated 30, 30 years later. We actually know from history that story was still being circulated in the second century because the Christian apologist Justin Martyr refuted that notion extensively in his own written works. And so that was the story. That was their story, and for centuries they were sticking to it. Here's why that's significant. Think about this. Why would the Jewish authorities have to invent a story like that? Because it's not actually a very strong defense The tomb, after all, was guarded. The disciples were not soldiers. They were, by and large, fishermen and accountants. Plus, that lie solves only a small part of the problem. It didn't address the reports of all the people who claimed to have seen Jesus alive. So why go with such a weak option? And the answer must be because the more convincing option was not available to them. They obviously could not produce the body. The tomb was undeniably empty. Think about it. The easiest way, the easiest way to refute the preaching of the apostles, because the apostles began preaching the resurrection of Jesus almost immediately. The easiest way to refute their preaching would have been to load the corpse of Jesus on a cart and drive it through the city of Jerusalem. Why did they not do that? And the answer must be because they could not do that. Which means, at the very least, the body of Jesus had disappeared. Which leaves us with their explanation. Perhaps the disciples stole the body. Perhaps. It is implausible, as I already mentioned, to think that a handful of fishermen and tax accountants, nothing against tax accountants out there, and I'm sure we have some very burly fishermen as well, (laughs) highly implausible to think that some tax accountants and fishermen would be able to overpower a platoon of well-armed soldiers. You noticed that the Jewish authorities had to pay the soldiers off and had to promise that they would deal with the governor. Because in those days, if a soldier lost custody of the person that was entrusted to their care, they were executed. So these would have been highly motivated, highly armed, soldiers. But maybe that happened. Maybe the disciples pulled off the the greatest mission and following that, the greatest lie in human history. 
But then there's this fact. They were all tortured, and 10 of the 11 were executed for propagating the message that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. How likely is it that 10 people would all agree together, not a single one of them changed their story, and would all allow themselves to be tortured to death for their belief? In fact, several of the apostles were crucified. It became quite popular to, to take an apostle and say, well, you're always preaching the resurrected Jesus. You, you say that he died on the cross for our sins. You said he rose from the dead. Well, let's crucify you and see how you do. How likely do you think it is that these men would allow themselves to be crucified? The most excruciating form of execution invented by the best executioners in human history. How many do you think if given an opportunity to come down from that cross, as the soldier came by with, with the, the bat that would effectively mean they were entering into their last minute of life, right before it struck the legs and said, listen, this can all be over right now. You can come down. You, still, you got your dislocated shoulders. You got some blood loss to recover from. But you, you can come down right now if you'll just admit that Jesus did not rise from the dead. How likely is it that 10 liars that not a single one of them would take that deal before the soldier broke his legs and ended his life. It is that fact, combined with the changed lives of the apostles, that convinced Jewish scholar Pincus Lapide. He said, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical fact, close quote. Lapide, as I mentioned, is not a Christian. He's a Jewish scholar. But even he must concede that the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. The famous, famous atheist and then later deist philosopher Antony Flew, also not a Christian, came to a similar conclusion. He said the evidence for the resurrection is better than, for, is better than what is claimed for most, or claimed miracles, uh, well that's a terrible sentence. The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. The sign of Jonah appears to be the best attested sign in human history, but what does it mean? If we grant that it happened, what does it mean? Jesus criticized the Pharisees and Sadducees for not being able to read or interpret the sign of Jonah. If you understand that a red sky at night is a sailor's delight, if you understand that a red sky in the morning, sailors take warning, if you understand that, how is it that you don't understand what it means when a man rises from the dead? The assumption, obviously, is that the sign of Jonah ought to have been fairly easy to make sense of. It was certainly easy enough for the Ninevites to make sense of the original sign of Jonah. Right? I mean, if a man who was reported as lost at sea, that this sailor said, was swallowed by a giant fish of some kind, if he comes stumbling back into your city, reeking of bile, with his skin bleached and seaweed in his hair, and starts preaching a message of repentance, you pay attention to that. Obviously, if God is going to go to great lengths to save that prophet's life, he must have something very important to say. So you pay attention. And the people of Nineveh did. They listened and they believed. Jonah 3 5 says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth 
from the greatest of them to the least of them. So in that story, with the original sign of Jonah, everybody knew what to do. Everybody knew what was being communicated. Nobody was, underst- under- nobody was confused. Everybody understood immediately what was being said. They interpreted the sign. They understood that the miracle authenticated the messenger. The same basic logic applies here. As Neil Shenvey writes in his book, Why Believe, he says the resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And it is God's assurance to Christians that they have been forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? Let me read that one more time. The resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and it is God's assurance to Christians that they have been forgiven. That's it. That's the message. The the resurrection, the sign of Jonah, is God's confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was. And the cross accomplished what he promised it would. And that's very helpful. Because, of course, you know, anybody can say anything about anything. Muhammad said that he met an angel in a cave. Okay? Joseph Smith said that an angel directed him to a buried book containing yet unknown revelation. Okay? Carl Sagan said that the universe is all there ever was and ever will be. He wasn't looking for God because he didn't believe the universe required a God. Fascinating. But here's the thing. None of those people ever rose from the dead. But Jesus did. Which is a good thing because Jesus made some pretty incredible claims. He said that he came down from heaven in John 3.13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He said that he had the power to forgive sins, Mark 2.5. He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. He said that his shed blood would be what purchased that forgiveness, Matthew 26. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He said that he had the power to bring people back from the dead, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He said that he was the gateway to the eternal kingdom of God, John 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Those are some pretty incredible claims. Power to forgive sins, resurrection unto life, entry into the eternal kingdom. That's everything. And if you're going to say things like that, then you need to be prepared to back them up. You need to do some kind of fabulous sign to indicate your identity and authority. And that's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the sign. It is proof positive. It is God saying that he is who he said he was, and he has accomplished what he said his death would accomplish. That's what the sign of Jonah means. But why does it matter? It matters because apparently all people, every human being, It's going to be held accountable for how they have responded to the signs and signals that they have received. Jesus said that in Matthew 12. He said, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. 
And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh, according to Jesus, are going to have to give an account for how they responded to to the preaching of Jonah. The queen of Sheba is going to have to give an account for how she responded to the wisdom of God in Solomon. And the Apostle Paul, in Romans 1, says that all people everywhere are going to have to give an account for how they have responded to the revelation of God through nature. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. According to the Bible, every human being will have to give an account for how they responded to whatever revelation they have received. And there is a lot of it. God is constantly communicating. As we just read in Romans 1, he is communicating to all people everywhere through nature. He is communicating through scripture. And then most spectacularly of all, he is communicating through the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the word of God in human flesh. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. And so that you could be absolutely confident in what he said and what he revealed, God raised him bodily, physically, visibly from the dead. He did that to indicate his authority and his affirmation. The resurrection was God saying loud and clear so that everyone could hear, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Believe in him. Follow him. We've talked before many times about how miracles in the Bible function like road flares. That's how they work. The purpose of a miracle is to draw our attention to the interventions of God in history. They're like fireworks that God sets off. He's saying, come on over here and see what I have done. The empty tomb then, of course, is the grand finale. It's the big one. It's the showstopper. It is the last and final word. Are you listening? The empty tomb is God's megaphone. Through it, he is calling all people everywhere to come unto Jesus and be saved. He has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to raise the dead. He has the power to open and shut the door to heaven. His ways are right and lead to life, abundant and eternal. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how gracious and how clear you have been. And Lord, we repent of the fact that we often ask for more when we have paid less attention to the things that you have already done than we ought to have. Lord, we thank you for the great clarity of the cross and the empty tomb. Lord, we thank you for this weekend, which has drawn us back to those world-changing, world-making facts. Lord, I thank you for the service we enjoyed on Good Friday the opportunity to think about what was said, what was done, and what was accomplished on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful for that. And then we thank you for the empty tomb. 
because of the empty tomb, we can be absolutely sure that that is the message you wanted us to hear, that those are the words that lead to eternal life, that this is the highway that all may walk upon that leads to life abundant and life eternal. And because that tomb is empty, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Savior lives today. There is a risen Savior There is a human being who is truly God and truly man standing right now. Whoever lives before the Father to make intercession for us. He's praying for us right now that we would hear this message, that we would receive it in faith, that we would grow in our salvation graces, that we would be changed by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Jesus Christ. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We give you thanks for that amazing truth. Help us to rest now in it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.